Last week we began looking at the book of Job. And the book opened with a crucial statement about Job's character. Three times we were told Job is blameless and upright. He fears God and shuns evil. And when we met him, we find out he was not only blameless, he was also incredibly blessed. He had a big, happy family, and he had vast wealth. But in the introduction to the book, we saw those blessings being stripped away from Job. Who was it that stripped them away? Well, it was the Sabaeans, and it was the Chaldeans, and it was the weather that stripped away Job's blessings. Human enemies stole Job's wealth and they killed his servants. Fire burned up the rest of his wealth. And a mighty wind caused the death of his children. It flattened the house they were in. It was human enemies and natural disasters that devastated Job's life. But the text also told us there was more to it than that. Satan stood behind those human enemies and natural disasters. They were instruments Satan used to strike Job. But the text told us there was more to it than that. Over and above human enemies, natural disasters, and Satan stood the sovereign God himself. The God who we learned is proud of Job. That same God also permitted Satan to strike Job. In fact, it was God who called called Satan's attention to Job. And he permitted Satan not only to strike his wealth and his family, but also Job's health. Why did God allow that? Well, as it's presented to us, God did it to silence Satan's accusation. Satan claimed God was not enough for humanity. Men and women will worship you for your blessings, Satan said, but they won't worship you just because you're God. Your people, God, even the best of your people, are fair-weather worshippers. Take away your blessings and they'll quit worshipping. By yourself, Satan said, you are not enough, God. By yourself, you're not worthy of worship. And God said, let's see. He's in your hands, but you must spare his life. And we saw Satan being proved wrong. Job responded to his loss with terrible grief and with worship. Job said, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. He said, shall we accept good from God and not trouble? Job passed the test. He proved Satan wrong. And in the process, Job proclaimed God's glory and God's worthiness. You and I might never go through the utter devastation that Job went through. But you and I can look at Job and we can know, even if God is all I have, God will be enough. Even if all his material and physical blessings are taken away, 
I will still be blessed because I will still have God himself. Job passed the test. But Job didn't know there was a test. You and I were shown what went on in heaven. Job was not. When it comes to God's purposes in his life, Job is in the dark. He has no idea what he has achieved with his simple faithfulness. He has no idea that by continuing to worship, he was displaying God's glory to all of heaven and to Satan and to you and me. Job has no idea God will use his faithfulness to speak to suffering believers all around the world for generation after generation, right until Christ returns. Job knows none of that. And so, Job has no satisfaction in a job well done. He has no sense of victory over Satan the accuser. What Job is experiencing is deep, deep pain. Physical pain from his broken body, but probably even more than that, emotional pain from his devastating loss. He is bankrupt and bereaved. When we first met Job, he was the greatest man among all the people of the East. But we left him sitting in the ashes with nothing but a broken pot to scrape his sores with. Job has worshipped God in his trouble and his pain. But do you think Job is floating above his trouble and pain? Do you think he's sitting there on the ash heap singing a little chorus to himself? I've got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. Well, let's see. We're going to pick up at chapter 2, verse 11. And we're going to read through to the end of chapter 3. If you're using the church Bible, it's page 510. And in the large print Bibles, page 786. Job chapter 2, verse 11. When Job's three friends, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite, heard about all the troubles that had come upon him, they set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud, and they tore their clothes and sprinkled dust on their heads. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. He said, may the day of my birth perish and the night that said, a boy is conceived. That day, may it turn to darkness. May God above not care about it. May no light shine on it. May gloom and utter darkness claim it once more. May a cloud settle over it. May blackness overwhelm it. That night, may thick darkness seize it. May it not be included among the days of the year, nor be entered in any of the months. May that night be barren. 
May no shout of joy be heard in it. May those who curse days curse that day. Those who are ready to rouse Leviathan. May its morning stars become dark. May it wait for daylight in vain and not see the first rays of dawn. For it did not shut the doors of the womb on me to hide trouble from my eyes. Why did I not perish at birth and die as I came from the womb? Why were there knees to receive me and breasts that I might be nursed? For now I would be lying down in peace. I would be asleep and at rest with kings and rulers of the earth who built for themselves places now lying in ruins with princes who had gold, who filled their houses with silver. Or why was I not hidden away in the ground like a stillborn child? like an infant who never saw the light of day. There the wicked cease from turmoil, and there the weary are at rest. Captives also enjoy their ease. They no longer hear the slave drivers shout. The small and the great are there, and the slaves are freed from their owners. Why is light given to those in misery, and life to the bitter of soul, to those who long for death that does not come, who search for it more than for hidden treasure? who are filled with gladness and rejoice when they reach the grave? Why is life given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? For sighing has become my daily food. My groans pour out like water. What I feared has come upon me. What I dreaded has happened to me. I have no peace, no quietness. I have no rest, but only turmoil. This is God's word. And this part of God's word records the speech of a man God himself calls blameless and upright. And this blameless and upright man is experiencing deep darkness. But before we get to what Job himself says, we're introduced to three very important characters. And they're introduced in a specific way. We're told in verse 11, these people are friends. Now, no doubt they're friends of one another, but what we're told is they are friends of Job. And the word that's used indicates these are proper friends. They're not just acquaintances. They're not Facebook friends who hardly know each other. They're not fair-weather friends who forget you when your money's gone. These men have a genuine relationship with Job. They care about him. When they hear about all the troubles that have come upon them, they arrange to meet up at a service station, and together they make the trip to us, where Job lives. We don't know how long the journey was. Maybe it took days, maybe weeks, But we do know why they're coming. It is not to gloat over Job's sufferings. It's to sympathize with him and to comfort him. They're true friends. They arrive at Job's ash heap. And chapter 2 verse 12 says, When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. Then they sat on the ground with him. For seven days and seven nights, no one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. 
Maybe you've had the experience of visiting a sick friend. Maybe having not seen them for a while. And when you get there, you find yourself shocked by how different they look. Maybe you manage to hide your reaction, but it can really shake you to see someone just wasted away physically. Or maybe, even worse, to see no hope left in their eyes. Well, in the case of Job's three friends, they don't hide their reaction at all. They burst into tears. And no doubt that brings home to Job just what a pathetic sight he is. All of them know this is not going to be a good old get-together where they catch up and laugh and joke about the past. Their friend looks like a stranger to them and they weep over his loss. I do not see anything blameworthy in what the friends do here. As this is presented to us, they're doing, aren't they, what the New Testament calls us to do. They're mourning with those who mourn. As best they can, they're trying to identify with Job. They're trying to enter into his pain. And so they don't rush to speak. For seven days and nights, they say nothing. Now that might seem extreme to you and me. We have trouble in our culture keeping quiet for seven minutes. But seven days of silence was a traditional part of mourning in this culture. We see it several times in the Old Testament. And some people have taken this mourning as a slight on Job. As if the three friends are implying somehow that Job is dead and they're mourning for him. But why would we interpret things that way? Hasn't he lost seven sons and three daughters? Isn't it more likely they're mourning for that loss? And they're mourning with Job. Now as this book goes on, you and I may well get frustrated with these three friends. Job certainly will. But their introduction is positive. It is good to have people who try to enter into our experience. Francis Bacon said, those who lack friends to open their hearts to become cannibals of their own hearts. Now our friends can never fully feel what we feel. And when they speak, often they won't quite say the right thing to us. But without them, we become cannibals of our own hearts. So when you're suffering, don't isolate yourself. That's the great temptation. But we need friends. And later on, Job will disagree passionately and angrily with his friends. But it's through disagreeing with them that he moves forward. In their presence, he stops stewing silently in his own pain. And he begins to pour out his pain and his anger. And as we'll see in weeks to come, the results of that are not always positive. But how much worse if he'd bottled it all up with no one to talk to. 
So don't shy away from suffering people. Don't be too quick to unleash your great wisdom on them, but don't shy away from them. And if you are suffering, try to appreciate friends who will sit there and listen. Job's friends sit and they wait. Finally, Job opens his mouth. And when he does, he reveals a troubled soul. In chapters 1 and 2, Job refused to curse God. That was emphasized for us. But in chapter 3, verse 1, he opens his mouth and curses the day of his birth. Look again at verse 3. May the day of my birth perish, and the night that said, A boy is conceived. That day, may it turn to darkness. May God above not care about it. May no light shine on it. May gloom and utter darkness claim it once more. May a cloud settle over it. May blackness overwhelm it. That night, may thick darkness seize it. May it not be included among the days of the year, nor be entered in any of the months. May that night be barren. May no shout of joy be heard in it. May those who curse days curse that day those who are ready to rise Leviathan. May its morning stars become dark. May it wait for daylight in vain and not see the first rays of dawn. For it did not shut the doors of the womb on me or hide trouble from my eyes. Job's point doesn't need a whole lot of explanation. In the book of Genesis, we're told about God's work of creation. God said, let there be light. And there was light. Here Job wishes that one particular act of creation could be reversed. When it comes to the day of my birth, Job says, I wish I'd never been born. When it comes to that day, let there be darkness. I wish the tape could be rewound and the creation of me could be undone. I wish the night of my conception could be retrospectively ripped out of the calendar. In verse 8, he even seems to be wishing that demonic forces would do that work for him. In Job's time, Leviathan was a mythical monster, a sea monster. And he represented the forces of chaos and evil in the world. Later in the book, God will have plenty to say about Leviathan. But here, Job seems to be saying, you people who put curses on things, you people who can call up evil forces, I wish you'd have a go on the day of my conception. I wish you'd rise Leviathan to undo the success of that day. My parents were filled with joy and hope when they heard I was going to arrive. But I wish I never had arrived. As we read this, don't we wonder what happened to the Job of chapters 1 and 2? The Job who said, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. The Job who said, shall we accept good from God and not trouble? What happened to that Job? What happened to that man with his rock-solid faith? The answer is, time happened. 
time to sit and marinate in his pain. To dwell on his suffering. When Job's suffering first hit him, he got his theology straight. But days and weeks of pain have got to him. Things are not straight for him anymore. He's not cursing God, but he's not praising him either at this point. In God's eyes, Job is still blameless. But Job himself feels utterly hopeless. That is what prolonged pain can do to us. Oftentimes it's not the first shock of suffering that takes us into darkness. What does the damage is the long, slow seepage of pain. The weeks and the months with no improvement at all. No deliverance. No word of explanation from heaven. That is what Job is going through and in the midst of it he wishes for death. In verses 1 to 10, he cursed his conception and his birth. But he knows, of course, those things never can be undone. And so he goes on to ask, why are the miserable given more life? Why do people who suffer go on living? It's obvious here, the thought of suicide is not an option in Job's mind. He's not thinking about taking his life. He's asking why God keeps giving him more and more days of life. Why doesn't God let him go out of his misery into the peace and the rest of death? And at this point, Job's thoughts begin to move beyond just his own misery. He begins to think of those who've been oppressed and abused the captives and the slaves. He says that death is a deliverance for people like that. In death, the rulers of the earth are no better than them anymore. The rich are no longer above them. Death levels the small and the great, he says. And so he says in verse 20, if death would mean rest for those who are suffering... Why is light given to those in misery and life to the bitter of soul, to those who long for death that does not come, who search for it more than for hidden treasure, who are filled with gladness and rejoice when they reach the grave? Why is life given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? For sighing has become my daily food. My groans pour out like water. What I feared has come upon me. What I dreaded has happened to me. Back in chapter 1, Satan accused God of putting a hedge around Job. And Satan's point was that God had protected Job and he'd made Job invulnerable to suffering. But here in verse 23, Job says, God has hedged me in so I can't escape suffering. God has imprisoned me in a miserable life and he won't let me out. And he says, my way is hidden. I can't see over this hedge around me. 
I can't see any way forward. Verse 26, I have no peace, no quietness, I have no rest, but only turmoil. These are the words of a man in deep, dark despair. What can we say about this? We've listened to Job. What can we say in response? Well, here are three things. Number one, this can be the experience of a Christian. Maybe some of us find that hard to swallow. Maybe we were under the impression God's people could never sink this low. If that's the case, then we need to think again. In chapter 1, God declared Job to be a blameless and upright man, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And God never retracts that declaration he made about Job. This man with his incredibly dark frame of mind is one of God's people. And maybe we want to say, but how could a child of God be so hopeless? What about God's promises? What about God's faithful character? The answer is there is always hope for God's people. But there may be times when the future appears hopeless. Times when we just can't see or feel the hope. But in those times, we're still a child of God. We are still held in his everlasting arms. If you want some more examples besides Job, read the life of William Cooper, spelt Cowper, one of the great hymn writers of the 18th century. I read about Charles Spurgeon, probably the greatest preacher of the 19th century. They're just two examples from a long, long list of faithful servants of God. And yet they knew all about times of deep darkness and despair. In one of Cooper's hymns, he asks, Where is the blessedness I knew when first I saw the Lord? Where is the soul-refreshing view of Jesus and his word? I don't know where they've gone, but I know they have gone. I only see darkness. Maybe some of us just can't relate to what we have read in Job chapter 3. We have never felt like this. But others of us might find it a strange relief to read this passage. It might come as an unlikely kind of comfort and encouragement to find these dark words recorded in the Bible, spoken by a genuine believer. Maybe your reaction is, I'm not the only one. I'm not the only one to feel hopeless when I know I'm supposed to have hope. What we read in Job 3 can be the experience of a Christian. 
And so here's the second thing we can say in response to this passage. We have to make a place for this in our fellowship and our worship. Romans chapter 12 calls us to mourn with those who mourn. It doesn't say, tell those who mourn to wise up and snap out of it. And if we do try to mourn with those who mourn, we should not be surprised if we end up listening to a deluge of doubt and anger from them. Don't be shocked if a suffering brother or sister tells you that instead of joy, joy, joy down in their hearts, they only have bleak darkness. And what about our worship? A few years ago, Carl Truman wrote an article called What Can Miserable Christians Sing? And in that article, he made the observation that almost all the songs we sing in church are happy songs. That's true whether we're talking about new songs or old ones. The tone is almost exclusively upbeat. And the result is we have created the impression the Christian life is one long triumphalistic street party. He says, by excluding the cries of loneliness, dispossession, and desolation from its worship, the church has effectively silenced and excluded the voice of those who are themselves lonely, dispossessed, and desolate. Now I understand when we meet together for worship, one of the aims is to lift our eyes up to God. We come here to be reminded of his promises and his power and his love. It's true, if we only were to sing dirges in church, we'd end up denying the reasons we have to hope. We come here to be led from the depths of our situation to the heights of God's glory. That's true. But even as we focus on the good news of Christianity, we mustn't give the impression there's no place for bad news in the Christian life. We mustn't make Christians or anybody else think there's no place for anything but happy faces and tapping feet among God's people. The fact is, until we get to the new heaven and earth, miserable Christians need something to sing. Don Carson says, God does not blame us if in our suffering we frankly vent our despair and confess our loss of hope, our sense of futility, our lamentations about life itself. It is far better to be frank about our grief, candid in our despair, honest with our questions, than to suppress them and wear a public front of puffy piety. Then third, having said, this can be the experience of a Christian. 
and that we have to make a place for this in our fellowship and our worship. Having said and taken all of that on board, we have to add, this is not the end. The darkness of Job chapter 3 is real, but it is not the place to stay. And Job is not going to stay here. We'll see in the weeks to come, it's a long road for Job. He doesn't just snap out of this. But because Job is a child of God, this darkness is not the end. It can't be. Job may feel that things are hopeless, but in reality, they are not. And in the end, God will show that to Job. And even here in chapter 3, there is a hint. This darkness is not the darkness of spiritual death. Look again at verse 26. I have no peace, no quietness. I have no rest, but only turmoil. Restlessness might not be enjoyable, but it is a sign of life. And eventually, Job's restlessness is going to lead him forward. He has been brutally honest about his feelings and his outlook. And one preacher says, his honesty is the pathway to his healing. Job sees nothing good, but he isn't going to lie down and die. Someone else has said, right here in the depth of his misery, he knows he has to deal with God. And as this book goes on, dealing with God is going to become Job's obsession. His restlessness will drive him on. So if you have identified with Job in this passage, if you find something like your own feelings represented here, then ask God to give you some of Job's restlessness as well. Restlessness that pushes you to go after God even in your darkness and your turmoil. And those of us who've been called to mourn with those who mourn, we've seen the need to listen. We've seen the need to be slow to speak. But let's also realize there does come a time to speak. With all of the sensitivity that we can manage, we want to help our brother or sister begin to inch forward towards God. And all of us need to remember there is one, just one, who has gone deeper into darkness than you or I ever will. The Bible tells us Jesus Christ was a man of suffering. It tells us he was familiar with pain. It tells us that on the cross, he was plunged into utter darkness. He cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you're in darkness, 
You need not be alone in your darkness. He can walk with you in it. And if you're trying to encourage a brother or sister through darkness, and if you feel helpless to get through to them, be sure that Jesus can get through. Ask him to bring comfort and hope. Because for Jesus, darkness was not the end. Good Friday gave way to Easter Sunday. And when you belong to Jesus, darkness will not be the end for you. Let's pray. Father, we come as your children. Some of us, children of yours, living through times of darkness. Some of us wishing we could help a friend in darkness. We look to your son. We know he went to the worst possible darkness. And he is able to carry us through darkness. We look to him for peace in the midst of our turmoil. We long for him to give hope to our hopeless brother or sister. Together, we look to you. Amen. We're going to close with a song by William Cooper, who we mentioned earlier. And we said, he knew all about darkness. But this song points the way out of darkness for us. God of my life, to you I call. You may not know the words so well, but the tune will be familiar to you.